1: I hope you're feeling adventurous today because we are about to journey deep into the heart of wrongthink. It's going to be an exciting trip and you are welcome to come along for the ride. Uh, As you may well know, engaging in wrongthink can be a little bit uh, uncomfortable at times. Sometimes we have to face uh, difficult truths. However... It so far outweighs groveling in groupthink that it's almost hard to describe the difference between the two. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including, and I want to welcome to the show, Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAMO.com, also Sewing uh, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, college.org LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. These sponsors are the ones who make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. And you'll find links to each one of them in my show notes, which you can find at my website, which is thebryanhideshow.com. So I'm going to start with a really difficult topic today. And this is, this is one that unfortunately has become very common. Disney and, you know, of course, Florida's law, which is protecting the rights of parents to, to shield their children from unwarranted sexual discussion and um and I'm going to use the word grooming that uh, that they don't want their their young kids, you know third graders through kindergartners, to be exposed to it's what some people are referring to as oh is that the don't say gay bill except the the bill says nothing about that. What it does is it establishes some boundaries as to what is appropriate, particularly for public educators to discuss with students in school and draws a very clear line. Now, we're going to talk about how this is establishing boundaries in some ways. In fact, I have a marvelous uh, a marvelous commentary from Brandon Smith that talks about how you've got to be a gatekeeper when it comes to kids. Gatekeeping is necessary. If you don't do it, well, it's not just a matter of, well, you're going to lose you know, politically or there's going to be some public policy that's going to run roughshod. If you believe in God, um, parents, don't think that God won't hold you accountable for being the protector and gatekeeper for your children. You have a stewardship and a responsibility there you really can't shy away from. But I want to start with something slightly different. And that's just because this is such a an emotion-laden topic, and it's one in which it's very easy to, to get caught up in labels. And I've seen this quite a bit in that uh, what we're seeing is the people who are pushing— You know, gender identity and sexual orientation um, talk on kids, little kids, are being accused of basically basically being pedophiles. Disney has seen a lot of this recently because, for some reason, Disney is is so woke and it stands up, you know, and says, oh, well, we're going to punish Florida because they're, they're, you know, trying to draw this line in the sand or they're trying to establish boundaries or hold lines that uh, we disagree with. And so they want to have more LGBTQ plus, you know, characters in Disney movies. But the problem is people get caught up in the whole, well, they're all pedophiles. These are all kitty diddlers. And that's, that's what makes it such a, you know, nefarious thing. Okay, there's a place for stereotypes. And usually there's a degree of truth. But Josh Dawes had a Twitter thread yesterday that I thought was really worthwhile about how to take a stand against that trend of turning our kids into little revolutionaries, in other words, grooming them, without lapsing into accusations of pedophilia. And this is what he says. He says, I'm seeing a lot of people on the right share this meme. And it's, it's a meme from The Simpsons. It's a bus driver saying, don't make me tap the sign. Now, in the show, the sign is like, do not talk to the bus driver. But the sign that, uh, of course, is is photoshopped into the meme is it's not rocket science, guys. They're just evil and want to diddle kids. That's the the pedophilia accusation being applied broadly to anyone who wants to talk to kids about sexuality. Now, he says, while it may be a strong satirical response to, to those who get lost in nuance, it fundamentally fails to recognize why the left wants to talk to your kids about sexuality. So he says, let's connect some dots. And the first point he makes is he says the left doesn't want to diddle kids. They want to create little revolutionaries. But to do that, they have to sever the bond between students and the parents they believe are raising their children to be hateful bigots. So, in order to sever that bond between parents and their children, the left is using a two pronged approach. Critical race theory is one of them, and racial gender ideology, properly known as queer theory. They're not two unrelated sets of ideas. They're two parts of the very same strategy. So CRT is usually the first set of ideas to be introduced, and that's often enough to radicalize racial minorities, but it's it's merely step one for white or white-adjacent students. CRT instills in these students a negative self-identity as they're taught to believe that they're recipients of enormous privilege that was stolen from others, and that they're complicit in historic and ongoing injustice. So in child's terms, they're taught to believe that they're bad. Now, apart from the shame and guilt, this also gives them a worldview at odds with the one that their parents grew up with and are trying to pass on to their kids. Step one is complete. Now, once CRT is done tearing down these kids and leaving them with a negative self-identity, queer theory, or QT, is introduced, and it offers them a wide assortment of positive self-identities to choose from. So instead of living with the shame and the guilt of being a member of the oppressive, dominant culture... Now these students can be celebrated for coming out as gender non-binary or pansexual. In an instant, these kids now can trade their negative self-identity and all the accompanying guilt and shame of being an oppressor for a positive self-identity as a much-venerated oppressed minority. Now he says at this point the left desperately wants this new identity to stay at school so it has time to be cemented before parents find out. In the guise of helping these students, schools withhold this information about their child's new identity from mom and dad. Now, once the parents do find out about the child's new identity, it's firmly in place and an adversarial relationship between the child and the parents has now been manufactured. It takes extraordinarily deft parenting to repair the relationship once it's reached this stage. So the parents' tendency to will be to overreact And to push the child further into the arms of the woke radicals who now have the little revolutionary they wanted from the beginning. The bond between parents and child has been severed, ending the perpetuation of hate and bigotry. And he says the left is determined to replicate this process in as many families as they can using whatever means they have at their disposal. So his point is, it's not about diddling kids. It's about capturing the minds of impressionable children. Now, unfortunately, this creates environments where actual predators can thrive. When young children are isolated from their parents, they're encouraged to adopt different beliefs and keep secrets from their parents. That makes them easy targets for abusers. Well, my school has Christian teachers and a Christian principal. They couldn't possibly have this agenda. And he says, "Uh uh-huh, this is where we turn to Joe Rigney and connect another dot. He says, hear me loud and clear. And this, this is actually the point here. Empathy has become a more popular virtue than sympathy in recent decades. But that shift doesn't come without its dangers. And he says, most teachers love the kids in their classroom and only want the best for them. They've had their empathy for these students weaponized against them by leftist activists promoting educational programs that sound nice and caring. So highly empathetic teachers are being used to promote this agenda, unaware of its insidious purpose. As an example, he says, I recently saw a teacher at a Christian school announce that she would no longer be using the words mom, dad or parents in her classroom. What's her reason? Well, she had just read a paper on the importance of making kids from non-traditional families feel included. So she suggested replacing donuts with dads with bagels with buds or something of the such. Now, that sounds like a very considerate thing to do for kids who might feel different because they don't have a dad or live with their grandparents. But its purpose is to subtly chip away at the very idea of a normative nuclear family, which, by the way, is a stated goal of the BLM organization. And Christians who think that we can embrace the ideas from CRT and reject radical gender ideology need to realize how the former is used to prepare kids to accept the latter. Now, these are your kids they're talking about. The left wants them. They would love to sever your bond with your kids. They think your appeals to childhood innocence are an attempt to force heteronormativity on them. Seriously, they write papers about this. It's not a secret agenda. Now, apparently there's a three-part series uh, walking through this entire agenda, looking at primary sources, and he has a link to this in the Twitter thread, which I've put together as a thread unroll for you. The point is that the meme that he opens up with is an easy response to the insanity that we're seeing today, but it's not a great explanation. They're not all pedophiles. We should take the time to help people see how nice-sounding programs are being used in the classroom to create little activists and to put kids in danger. And again, this is from Josh Dawes. I have a link to that Twitter thread in my show notes at com. And it's just part of that... Uh, it's part of that whole philosophy of, look, if you're going to speak the truth, speak it with love. You don't have to resort to name-calling, and you don't have to resort to you know, emotional grandstanding. And when we come back, we're going to take a little bit deeper dive into what it means to be a gatekeeper and why the left gets so incensed when people assert those boundaries, particularly in regards to children. Brandon Smith has a marvelous article. I'll share it with you right after these messages.
0: This is, the this is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome a new sponsor to the program. That would be Dixie Chiropractic. That's the office of Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit their website. There's a link in my show notes. It's DixieChiro.com. And this is for especially my listeners in southern Utah. What an advantage you have, especially if you are dealing with car accident injuries. You better believe Dixie Chiropractic can take care of you. If, if like me, you're dealing with bulging, herniated discs, oh, man, I, I learned about this a few years ago, and um, it's, it's a thing that... Uh, well, it could, let's just say it can really put a cramp in your style. You need to contact Dixie Chiropractic if this is something you're dealing with. Uh, $99 intro special with two treatments and a massage. You can just get in touch with Dr. Wagner's office. They also help to treat neuropathy with the Calmer treatment plus massage. That massage factor, I've got to tell you, that, that actually really interests me. Go to their website, DixieChiro.com. You'll find all the information you need to get in touch with Dr. Ward Wagner. I welcome them aboard as a sponsor of this program and would appreciate it if you need their services. If you would find them and do business with them, let them know that their message reached your ears. Well, there's a lot of anger that's coming from the left over parents who have voiced disapproval to educators grooming their children to become little cultural culture warriors. Brandon Smith says they want your children, but it's not just about sex. His article is actually titled, Leftists are Angry About the Florida Anti-Grooming Law Because They Want Your Children. Here's what he says. He says, why would someone be enraged by a law that prevents teachers from exposing children to sexual indoctrination and demands parents are kept in the loop on classroom lessons? The answer is, it's obvious. They're mad because they like the idea of grooming kids. They don't want the process interfered with in any way. Now, he says, first, however, I think we need to understand what grooming really is. And it's not only about sex. One of the most pervasive cancers within our society today is social justice-based communism. In every way, the ideology is predicated on lies and disinformation, but this deceit is merely a tool to achieve an end goal. The re-education or brainwashing of future generations into the leftist fold. Now, Brandon Smith says leftists often talk about notions of community, but community is a voluntary structure. So when they say they want community, what they really mean is they want collectivism. And collectivism, by definition, is not voluntary, but forced through violence or coercion or propaganda. So to these ends, leftists seem to have gravitated like sharks into the public school system, specifically to prey on the easiest targets in the ocean, which would be your children. Now, he says, I've recently heard the argument that the Florida bill should not be called an anti-grooming bill because not all gay people are groomers. And he says, I don't think anyone made that claim anyway. But what we are saying, though, is that all social justice warriors are indeed groomers. And this is the root problem. They've been doing this in subtle ways for many years. But in the past five years, their methods have become rather careless and obscene. The grooming of children in today's public schools is not only relegated to sexualization. It also involves ideological molding and cultism. Well, this may seem like strong words, okay? Some people may recoil from that, but I think, he's, I think he's actually using correct terminology when he points this out. When leftists refer to Florida Bill 1557, they call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. But that has nothing to do with the basic notion of homosexuality. This is about the political weaponization of homosexuality and transsexuality, among other things. It's about using sexual orientation to propagandize children and to create new little soldiers for communist social justice. Now, just as I've said many times in the past when it comes to pop culture and movies, Brandon Smith says the existence of gay people or even diversity is not the problem. It's communism that's the problem. We don't want communism infecting our entertainment and we certainly don't want it around our children set aside the fact that there is no science whatsoever to support the concepts of gender fluidity that are usually addressed in these lessons. Some Florida teachers and social justice warriors, he says, are up in arms this week as Governor Ron DeSantis signs the dreaded 1557 bill into law. Their claim? That bill is somehow a violation of their free speech rights. In fact, this is an excerpt from a news report that uh, that demonstrates exactly what he's talking about here. Check this out.
2: Harvey Elementary in Parrish, Florida. He is openly gay and has spoken about how uh, this new law is going to impact his classroom. Corey, thank you so much for joining us this uh, this morning. We appreciate it. Just give me first your reaction you for having me. Excited to, to, be here. to the Florida governor signing this um, into law. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's twofold. It really hits hard um, in my heart professionally and uh, personally, both. Uh, professionally, it. it truly makes me feel like um i am not trusted as a professional um i know my kindergarten standards through and through and um, nowhere in our curriculum does it have anything about um teaching sexual orientation or sexual identity um so for them to to say that that, that that's happening um that you know it's kind of crazy um but uh, we should be able to have discussions and and that's what we're encouraged to do in kindergarten and then personally because um, you know, my, my kids do have questions. They want to know who the, uh, my partner is in pictures yeah. outside of my classroom, and I should be able to speak to that. So, so do you worry that you won't even be able to talk about your own personal home life? I mean, I have a child in kindergarten right now. I know exactly that my, my child has two teachers, one of which has a daughter at home um, and is single. The other is married and has four children. I, I know everything about their lives because my kid tells me. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are 100% correct. Um, that's what we do as educators. We build relationships with our kids. And in order to build relationships, you talk about your home life. You talk about what you do on the weekends. That's building community. I. It scares me to death that I'm not going to be able to have these conversations with my children because they're going to ask me what I did on the weekend. I don't want to have to hide that my partner and I went paddleboarding this weekend.
1: Okay. I'm going to stop it there, but you get the idea. It's all about me, and it's all about validating me and my partner. And my kids want to know what me and my partner are doing. And my kids, what the hell? These are kindergartners. I'm sorry. This I'm now. I'm getting drawn into this emotionally. But it's <clears throat> how frustrating that this is the attitude. That uh, you know, this is this is violating this teacher's right of free speech. Now, Brandon Smith gets right to the heart of the matter here, and he says, "Look, I think this needs to be said. Public school teachers." Are not important. Now, I know. Don't uh, don't recoil like you've been slapped. My wife is a public school teacher, and I read that and went, "Dude, that's pretty bold." But here's what he's saying: I'm sure there are many good ones out there, and this is not an attack on them. What I'm saying is, glorification and worship of teachers is out of place in our society, and is completely overblown. And I think it leads to attitudes like this teacher who said, these are my my children, and I need to be able to have discussions about what I'm doing in my private life. Okay, I'm old. I'm north of 56 years old, and I remember in kindergarten, my teacher, Mrs. Denny, I knew nothing about her family. That was not any of our business. You know what I knew was that it's singing time or it's nap time or somebody stepped on one of the tadpoles that jumped out of the, you know, the aquarium that we had or something. That's the stuff I remember from kindergarten. I don't remember anything about that. Now, I I did meet my kindergarten teacher later in life. She actually had moved into our neighborhood and was in my church congregation. And it turns out, you know, yes, she was divorced and had a boy who was a year younger than me. And Actually, I became friends with him. But none of that was relevant to our kindergarten experience. None of it. So, like Brandon Smith is pointing out, at some point along the line, leftists in particular decided that teachers are the emissaries of moral order and equity, and their jobs should be treated as sacrosanct. And he says that's nonsense. Teachers are mere employees of the district they work in, that's all. Parents pay the taxes that pay their salaries, the parents are the employers, the parents are the boss. And they, what they say goes. And he says teachers need to understand this. The parents own you. So get used to the idea. You're not special. All right, I'm going to give everybody a minute here to calm down, especially those who are teachers going, what the heck? <laughs> I know that's a, that's a painful thing to consider for some, but I think he's right. We put thing, We put teachers on a pedestal to where you can't even question this. That's not good. It's really not. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know you're looking for peace of mind just like I am looking for peace of mind. Having the ability to stand on your own two feet is one of the surest ways I know to increase your peace of mind regardless of what's going on in the world. That's why I'm encouraging you to click on the link I provide in my show notes for lifesavingfood.com. They'll take it from there. Once you look at their website, you'll see they have plenty of ways to bolster your self-reliance through food storage and emergency preparedness. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. You'll not only be doing me a favor by doing business with one of my sponsors, you'll also be doing yourself a favor by, uh, again, claiming your peace of mind. Back to Brandon Smith's article. The leftists are angry about the Florida anti-grooming law because they want your children. I like Brandon Smith. I think he's very direct in his writing. Um, I think I agree with him a, a lot of the time. There's a few times he and I will will diverge on our beliefs, but generally I found him to be a very good, dispassionate source of truth and light, and that's a tough thing to find these days. Now, he was pointing out as we went to the break that parents and teachers need to understand that teachers are employees. They are not special. They do not get to to sit on a pedestal where they must, must be unquestioned, you know, as to everything they're doing, including their motives. And with this interview, this news interview with this gay Florida teacher... He says it showcases some unhinged misconceptions and assumptions. For instance, the new law in Florida does not say that a teacher is not allowed to mention that they are gay. But frankly, no teacher should be discussing their private lives with their students anyway. At no point in my childhood, he says, did I ever hear a teacher talk about their home lives or who they were sleeping with. That's a new trend within the past decade. Not long ago, teachers specifically avoided such idiocy in order to prevent rumors from circulating through the school halls about them. And yes, he says, we did have at least one gay teacher. He never discussed it in the classroom, ever. His job was not under threat for doing so. He was just a professional, right? Some things are meant to be kept in private. Some things are part of my job. This teacher obviously understood the difference. Brandon Smith says, this kind of professionalism is not acceptable to leftists because they view the classroom as more than just a place of academia. They view it as a place for engineering conformity, as well as a personal therapy bubble for themselves. He says, I can't count how many videos I've seen in the past few years of teachers coming out to their students in a desperate play for attention and applause. And the narcissism inherent in this behavior is stunning. These teachers have turned their classrooms into environmental extensions of their own mental deformities and insecurities, and now they lay these problems in the hands of students. The invasion of trans and gender-fluid rhetoric, along with critical race theory, is at times about the ego of the teacher— but it's also at times a game meant to inspire submission in the group when a teacher walks into a classroom and starts bloviating about their sexual identity and pronouns, looking for approval from the children. How often are those children allowed to disagree with the concepts, and when they do disagree, how often do these teachers use their position of authority to hound these students into silence or submission? How often do students i 'm sorry how often do teachers inspire mob mentality in other students? and encourage them to go on the attack against any kids who don't conform. Brandon Smith says that's a major threat to the psychological health and development of children. Florida leftists are complaining that they must now walk on eggshells in terms of what they say in the classroom. but They never had a problem making students walk on eggshells when it comes to what they're allowed to disagree with in the classroom. He says the interesting thing about this is the social justice warrior response to being called out or being caught Even after years of bragging about how they're indoctrinating children in their classes all over social media, they'll inevitably claim that laws like those implemented in the Florida bill are pointless because the agenda doesn't exist. That's right. All that excited blabbering on Twitter and TikTok about luring kids into gender bending and the religion of pronouns. And suddenly conservatives are just overreacting or they're paranoid. Well, in countries like Canada, LGBT LGBT indoctrination is the norm in some schools and has been for several years, yet we're supposed to believe there's no plan to do the same in the U.S.? He says LGBT activists have declared in the past they're coming for our children. The typical M.O. of leftist activists is to openly admit their agenda, and then when they get blowback they didn't expect, they claim it was all satire. You remember the little gem of a video of this entire chorus singing, we're coming after your children? He has a link to it in the article. Now, he says leftists say this is little more than a joke, but their actions say otherwise. Monty Python is satire. Blazing Saddles is satire. But the video he links, that's definitely not satire. Leftists in our modern era have no understanding of satire. So the argument rings pretty hollow. Now, they do understand gaslighting, however. And when all else fails, social justice warriors exploit this common fallback. It's their nature to lie while doubling down. So at bottom, if there's no need for Florida law to exist because there's no indoctrination going on in the classrooms, well, then these teachers have nothing to worry about and they shouldn't be complaining. Why complain if there's no agenda? Now, he says, it's here I think we need to address a bigger issue, which social justice warriors often screech about, and that's the idea of gatekeeping. So he says, I'm going to say it right here and now. Gatekeeping is good. It always has been and it always will be. The idea that we must be accepting of everyone all the time is foolish and insane. Some people are not compatible with truth or with reason, and they need to be kept away from vulnerable institutions such as schools and away from innocent children that make up the lifeblood of our future. Now, the conservative argument has always been that not all change is good and not all change is progress. Some changes are regressive rather than progressive. Some changes are simply designed to do harm, and some people are simply evil. Discrimination in some respects is absolutely necessary in order for our core values and principles to survive. There are times when discrimination is necessary for our very nation and culture to survive. Now, he says, leftists always turn turn to the old standby argument when they're faced with the prospect that the culture at large does not want them around. We live in a democracy, and inclusion is somehow a prerequisite. In other words, if you go against them, you're going against your own values of freedom. But he says, that's nonsense. We are not a democracy, of course. We are a democratic republic, and there's a big difference, but that's a discussion for another article. According to the non-aggression principle, freedom does not apply to the people that are trying to destroy it. Leftists do not get to target freedom for destruction and then cry victim and proclaim their love of freedom when people get in their way. Gatekeeping is good because certain pillars of our society need to be kept inoculated against the destructive methods of the political left. These people do not belong here. They do not deserve freedom. They do not deserve to live among people that actually love freedom. So the bottom line, according to Brandon Smith, is that the debate on anti-grooming is really a debate on the necessity of record-keeping. Leftists support it when they think they're in control, and they attack it when they think it's going to be used against them. And he says, I can't imagine any area of our culture more vital than to protect our children. And this is where gatekeeping must be employed with full force and without mercy. Florida is doing it right. Let's hope the rest of the country follows their example. What do you think of that? I think this is actually one of the clearest defenses of why it's sometimes imperative to speak up and to say no. And and the, the activist LGBT community, which is a tiny portion of the people who are actually gay, oh, they do not like to hear that word no. That's where the accusations of bigot and so forth come out. And it's, it's, it's simply a tantrum that's being thrown and, and guilt being weaponized to try to force people into abandoning their principles or at the very least shutting up and, and not defending their principles. Look, I know this is going to strike some people as as a really harsh thing, but the parents who I know are most serious about protecting their child and living up to their God-given stewardship of raising that child to be a good, productive, uh, discerning member of society are usually the parents that have pulled their kids out of public education. Now, again, that's going to sound like a blanket condemnation of of wherever it is. There are certain... Employees, And there are even certain school districts that that have a pretty good uh, grasp of reality, that don't play with this nonsense. But it's really hard not to notice the trend where this is spreading like wildfire. And even these good districts find themselves sometimes by law required to accommodate a lot of this leftist ideology under the guise of, well, we're just trying to promote equity and we're just trying to make things, you know, a safe environment. Safe for whom? For those who toe the line for this particular, you know, bit of leftist ideology, okay, well that makes sense. But can you be honest about it, rather than pretending it's some kind of a pogrom to to go in there and punish those who think differently? I know for a lot of parents, the idea of well, I couldn't pull my kid out of school. I mean, uh, private school's ex- expensive, or I don't have I don't have somebody to watch the kids while I'm at work. And believe it or not, that's the trade-off a lot of parents have made. School serves a useful purpose, maybe a couple of useful purposes. Number one, well, my kid is learning something there, but it also provides a de facto daycare for me. And I have to ask you, if that's your attitude, you might want to evaluate what matters, what matters most. All right, I've stirred it up a bit. Going to step back here, maybe go put a cool washcloth on my forehead. We'll be back after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to give a shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. Grateful to have them as a sponsor of this program. If you like things that go bang... These are some great guys to know. In particular, Spencer Worthington. He is the founder of HSLAMO.com. It is a Southern Utah business and it's doing great things. Not only uh, keeping people employed and gainfully providing something that a lot of people truly appreciate, but also providing the means for people to go out there and have recreation to gain skill at arms and to uh, make a joyous noise for freedom. Their website is linked in my show notes under the sponsor links. That's hslammo.com if you have the chance. If you're out and about and you run into Spencer, let him know that his message reached your ears. Well, if you're paying close attention, and if you're, if you're being honest, you're going to have to admit that conspiracy theorists these days look less and less like fringe extremists and more and more like people who've noticed something they weren't supposed to notice. Got a great article here from Dave Smith. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. And it's about the Great Reset and how this is no path to happiness. I want to share a couple of excerpts with you. He says, sometimes I think Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum and co-author of the book COVID-19, The Great Reset, is a warm-hearted philanthropist with a dark sense of humor. He says, recently I read a puerile and degrading article in Forbes titled, Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better, was written by one of the World Economic Forum's brilliant young global leaders and published back on November 10th of 2016. Now, the article describes much of what the World Economic Forum has been touting for the past two years, or what they call the Great Reset. Some of the scenarios described have already been implemented or are in the process of being implemented since Dr. Fauci's deadly pandemic flattened the Earth in two weeks. Now, of course, only a dim-witted conspiracy theorist sitting in a dank basement would think that the pandemic was a pretext, a conditioning exercise to intentionally destroy free society and create a digital technocratic totalitarian dystopia wherein people's businesses and jobs have been destroyed, wiping away much of their asset ownership with vaccine mandates used as a stealth weapon to make bodily autonomy and medical privacy archaic. Funny how all those things are summed up euphemistically in the article's title. Albeit the last part about life being better than ever, unless of course you're a billionaire like many members of the World Economic Forum. But the Forbes article, like everything the World Economic Forum spews, literally smacks of someone talking down to a child, which is exactly what it's intended to do. Appeal to a stupefied population socially engineered to be infantile in its thinking and reasoning abilities. So these are some highlights of the articles with his of the article with his translation. First, the title. Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Now, Dave Smith says, does this require any explanation about how insane and dehumanizing their plans are for their so-called great reset? You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. This is the bizarre, unabashed slogan of the World Economic Forum. And anyone with two brain cells will notice how the past two years have set us up for exactly what they describe without the happy part. Using the pretext of a pandemic to mask an already collapsed economy, causing skyrocketing inflation to collapse the dollar and then conditioning people to accept no privacy or bodily autonomy, all while being digitally tracked everywhere they go via a central bank digital currency that Biden's already talking about. Yes, after the economy is completely destroyed, you will be wiped out, buried in debt. You will own nothing, have no privacy and your life will be better than ever. Okay, here's another excerpt from the article. Welcome to 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say, our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. So if you still own anything at this time, even the clothes on your back, just wait. After you're hit with the coming economic tsunami that we generated, BlackRock will finally own whatever's left. Sometimes I get on my bike when I go to see some of my friends. I enjoy the exercise and the ride. It kind of gets the soul to come along on the journey. Ah, yes, indeed, Dave says. If you're fortunate enough to own a bike, it will be your only mode of transportation. Now you'll be forced to get off your lazy, obese butts. If you still have a soul left, congratulations. The article says everything you considered a product has now become a service. And this is something the World Economic Forum loves to talk about. Basically, and they say this elsewhere, you won't own the clothes on your back, but will instead rent them, along with every other product that will be provided as a service. And guess who will provide all these wonderful services? Not your local mom-and-pop shops, which have mostly been wiped out, but our wonderful, warm-hearted World Economic Forum overlords like Bezos and Gates. It made no sense for us to own cars anymore because we could call a driverless vehicle. Well, this is what the insane and artificially high gas prices are about, possibly heading up to $10 or more a gallon by the time they're finished jacking them up, along with the manufactured fear of climate change. Make cars a thing of the past, not because the intellectuals at the World Economic Forum give a damn about the environment they've been destroying for decades. This is getting rid of cars under the guise of environmental concern when their real concern is financial gain from the enormous worldwide fleet of driverless cars and Uber-type services they will own and you will rent. In our city, we don't pay any rent because someone else is using our free space whenever we do not need it. My living room is used for business meetings when I'm not there. Now, this is typically World Economic Forum weird. We're allowed to leave our modular containers. Someone else will be using them for important business meetings. Is this a take on the B&B rental model except you don't even get paid? At least they're going to allow us a free space. Lovely. And who are these businessmen who will be using our, li- our living rooms? Inspectors or vaccine administrators in suits? They really mean it when they say you will have no privacy. The article says when products are turned into services, no one has an interest in things with a short lifespan. Everything is designed for durability, repairability, and recyclability. Everything will be rented to you, in other words, and designed to have the shortest lifespan possible engineered obsolescence. Deliberately limiting the life of a product in order to encourage the user to replace it. Also called built-in obsolescence. But hey, they'll kindly handle all your repairs and recycling too, for a fee, of course. The article says shopping? I can't really remember what that is. For most of us, it's been turned into choosing things to use. Sometimes I find this fun, and sometimes I just want the algorithm to do it for me. It knows my taste better than I do by now. Love it! No longer will you have to shop until you drop. You can rely exclusively on Amazon, just as we conditioned you to do in our two-year pandemic exercise. And who needs a brain or privacy when you can rely on an algorithm that knows more about you than you do? Now you don't even have to bother with the excruciating mental exercise of thinking about what to buy. What will these tech geniuses think of next? Priceless. When AI and robots took over so much of our work, we suddenly had time to eat well, sleep well, and spend time with other people. Yes, Dave Smith says, being completely obsolete, you'll have all the time in the world to contemplate your misery, even with your family and friends. Next, the article says, for a while, everything was turned into entertainment. and People did not want to bother themselves with difficult issues. It was only at the last minute that we found out how to use all these new technologies for better purposes than just killing time. In other words, we've provided you deplorables with bread and circuses and you're still ungrateful, unmanageable, and generally generally a major pain in the rear. But we found out how to use new technologies such as subscription vaccines combined with never-ending manufactured crises for the purpose of controlling you. Now listen to this next part. My biggest concern is for all the people who do not live in our city, those we lost on the way, those who decided that it became too much. All this technology, those who felt obsolete and useless when robots and AI took over big parts of our jobs. Those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They lived different kinds of lives outside of the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities. Others just stayed in the empty and abandoned houses in small 19th century villages. Dave Smith goes, when I read this, I had to wipe away a tear or two. Our masters never tire of being so concerned about us, do they? Doesn't this reveal a lot about the last two years so all the disaffected, lost, and deplorable people who decided they didn't want to be prisoners in disposable communities of a corrupt cabal of wealthy maniacs and decided to just form their own little islands of freedom, grow their own little gardens, and have their own microeconomy in an attempt to remain human will be relegated to 19th century villages? Please. And finally... Once, I, once in a while, I get annoyed about the fact that I have no real privacy. Nowhere can I go in and not be registered. I know that somewhere, everything I do, think, and dream is being recorded. I just hope no, nobody will use it against me. He says, note that they have no qualms about saying you can't go anywhere without being registered. Of course, that obviously means being digitally tracked. When the economy finally collapses completely and our manufactured supply chain shortages have you starving, you will beg for universal basic income, which will be generously offered to you, forcing you into a nightmarish digital labyrinth. The vaccine mandates were for conditioning the herd for this innocent sounding euphemism of totalitarian control. And he says you can bet you're inhuman behind everything you do, think and dream will be tracked and absolutely will be used against you. I mean, this is some pretty harsh analysis, but I don't think he's wrong in how he's portraying this. Is that acceptable on any level to you? It's not to me. I definitely will be one of those people living a 19th century existence. But I will be living as a free individual, no matter the cost, no matter the hardships. That's the decision I've made.
0: This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here to tell you what to think. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to share my opinion, but you are free to reject it or embrace it as you see fit, because after all, it's your mind. And my primary purpose here is to encourage you to think clearly and independently, which is why I break away from the mainstream narrative... And try to share information that I find credible, timely, and decidedly non-partisan. Now, that means that sometimes it's going to bump you into the limits of your mental universe. And I understand that can be uncomfortable. But just understand me that this is not an attempt to try to uh, persuade you that somehow you are deficient or you're evil or you're stupid because you don't see things a certain way. Rather, it's to expand whatever your worldview is to where you can see from a number of different vantage points and work out what is best or what is most likely to ring true for you. By the way, I've got some great sponsors who help me in this daily journey. They include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAMMO.com, and I'd like to welcome Dixie Chiropractic or DixieChiro.com as one of my new sponsors. Well, let's uh, let's push against the, the limits of our mental universes just a little bit. Right now, there is an intense amount of focus on what is happening between Ukraine and Russia. This is dominating the news cycle. It's where we're being told your attention has to be here or you're not a good person. What? You don't have a Ukrainian flag in your profile? Oh, what are you, some kind of Russian asset? And I know you think I'm exaggerating, but... That is the kind of binary thinking or that's the the horns of a dilemma on which we're being placed. You're either with the Ukrainians or you're with Russia. What if homie don't want to play that game? See, I I like writers like the Z-Man, who does a great job in this article I'm about to share with you, of, of showing how the men who are engaging in global gamesmanship right now want us to believe they have it all under control. But historically, nah, they don't. Here's what he has to say. He says, one of the puzzles from the Great War, meaning World War I, is how leaders on both sides allowed themselves to get drawn into the war. Now, there are plenty of reasons why each country would want war, including the infamous one that caused a certain Austrian fellow to coin the term the big lie. But the problem with all of the reasons is they made little sense in light of the obvious costs of the war. As a result, the Great War is an example of how events can take on a a life of their own. Now, the remarkable thing about that war is that once it settled into trench warfare, no one realized the hopelessness of it. And one can understand how the initial events would spiral into a global conflict. That's not exactly a new phenomenon. Similarly, you can see how the initial moves in the war made a lot of sense to the leaders on both sides. This was the first industrial war, so they had a lot to learn. New weapons needed new tactics, but few people realized that at the beginning of the war. The great puzzle of the war is that the sides did not see the hopelessness of the situation once it settled into a stalemate. Both sides were losing tens of thousands of men with each attack, only to gain a few yards of ground. The Battle of the Marne and the subsequent race to the sea made sense. The losses were high, but both sides had hope for quick victory. Two years later, the French and Germans lost over a million men at Verdun, and the winner got nothing for their trouble. A century on, and we're getting some fresh insight into why Western leaders in the Great War were incapable of seeing things clearly. The war in Ukraine is proving nothing like Western planners imagined. They assumed Ukrainians would stall the Russians into a stalemate of urban warfare. The world would rally to the sanctions regime, and it would quickly be a question of how long the Russians could suffer the economic consequences of the sanctions. Well, after just one month, it's clear this is not happening. The Russians did not fight like the NATO planners imagined. Instead of rushing to Kiev, they pinned the Ukrainian army in the north using classic maneuver tactics. Meanwhile, their main army is systematically destroying the Ukrainian army in the south and east. And it also appears that the Russians were well prepared for the Ukrainian tactic of digging into urban areas. Now, it's just a matter of time before the Ukrainian army in the east is lost. Now, that's just one miscalculation by the West, but the Z-Man says that should be concerning. The Russians are not doing anything novel in Ukraine. They're using classic tactics that have been used in Europe since Napoleon. And further, they're following a doctrine they evolved in the Second Chechen War. That was a doctrine Vladimir Putin created as the guy running that war for Russia. It seems that no one in the West bothered to study the man they claim is the new Hitler. Now, that's only one part of the miscalculation and a small part at that. The decision to cut off the Russian central bank appears to have been a massive blunder. The Russians, faced with the threat of their dollar and euro assets being seized by Western banks, have told the West, fine, you can pay for your goods in rubles. Otherwise, they're forced to send product to the West but not be paid for it. Alternatively, they'd have to make concessions in order to get their assets unfrozen by the West. Now, why anyone in the West thought this was a good idea is a mystery. It turns out the Biden administration did not consult with the Federal Reserve. Europe appears to have just followed along without questioning the policy. Now that Russia has countered their move, Europe is in a terrible position. They either support the ruble with massive purchases or they face an imminent shortage of natural gas. That means rationing of energy products could happen as soon as this month. Now, of course, the word shortage and rationing will trigger the natural response, which is hoarding and price gouging. And that will also mean a political response. And the German political elite seem to be embracing their inner Marie Antoinette by telling the Germans, wear a sweater while you shiver in the dark. Presumably, they'll tell the people to eat bugs when the food shortages hit this summer. Maybe German TV will start celebrating the turnip winter as a way to motivate the public. Now, the Z-Man says, in fairness... We have no idea how the the Russians and the Chinese are viewing this thing as Western media refuses to cover that aspect. We should assume the lack of food riots and social unrest in Russia means they are not teetering on collapse. This was the prediction at the start of this war. The best and brightest in the American managerial elite predicted the Russians would have collapsed by now. And they also assumed China would be wavering in their support at this stage. Now, he says, the point is, we are seeing in real time how supposedly clever political leaders can stagger from one blunder to the next. Unlike the Great War, this war has one side that seems to have updated its thinking since the last century. The Russians are planning for tomorrow, while the West is planning for 1985. In fact, the Biden people actually thought his speech in Poland would be his Brandenburg Gate moment. That's the most terrifying event of this crisis so far. So the Z-Man says, there we see the best parallel to the Great War. The men moving pieces on the board were men of a prior age. They were trying to fight the old wars. And similarly, the political leaders were operating in a 19th century mindset. The trouble was, they were armed with 20th century weaponry. Today, the West is led by 20th century men desperate to maintain 20th century arrangements. And so their opponent is not Russian, China, or the New World Order, but rather the passage of time. Now, again, I don't expect you to agree with that. I'm not sharing that with you to, to make you angry or to otherwise, you know, frustrate you. I'm just offering it as a broader perspective than what you're going to get through most mainstream sources, including Fox News. So please take it in the spirit of which it's intended. It's not here to prove you wrong. It's here to to offer some greater vantage points than you previously had. What you do with that information, however, that's entirely up to you. Now, from here, I want to pivot and share with you a couple of thoughts from Caitlin Johnstone. And I I have to give this disclaimer every time I share something from her. I think she is one of the best truth tellers in the world. And I say that with the full understanding. There are many places where I do not agree with her. But I like to get her take Simply because I believe she is sincerely speaking the truth as she best understand it, understands it, and she does it with humor too. So it's a it's a full strength reality supplement, but it goes down easy. And one of her observations is that the U.S. Empire's ultimate target is not Russia, but rather China. So while the two minutes hate is still you know spun up to full speed and and it's it's very loud in our ears, and we're being told you need to join in. Russia is not the ultimate target. And what she refers to here is the Pentagon has produced its latest National Defense Strategy, or NDS, a report made every four years to provide the public and the government with a broad overview of the U.S. war machine's planning, posturing, developments, and areas of focus. Now, you might assume with all the aggressive brinksmanship between Moscow and the U.S. Power Alliance that this year Russia would feature as enemy number one in the 2022 NDS. But you would be assuming incorrectly. The U.S. Defense Department reserves that slot for the same nation that's occupied it for many years now, that being China. Okay, I got to hit the, the brakes here because we're coming up on our commercial break. But when we come back, I'm going to share some of the excerpts from Caitlin Johnstone's article. It's also linked in my show notes. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to them, This is a great way if you're looking for some reading that will help bring you up to speed on, again, some different vantage points that you may not have considered before. Just share your email with me in the subscribe feature, and I'll get you taken care of. I'll send you a copy every day that I publish these show notes.
0: This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show.
0: This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just going to take a moment here and thank the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage for being a sponsor of this program. And encourage you that if you are anywhere in Utah or Idaho and you are looking for a home loan from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, I want you to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. She brings decades of experience to the table. She has the know how to get you the loan that you need and to do it in a timely fashion. Because, you know, it's a competitive real estate market. Everywhere you look, there are tons of people coming to the Intermountain West. Buying a home, holy cow, you better have your ducks in a row when you go shopping. Well, Heather and her team can help make that happen. You can call her at 435 703 4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop by 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her office. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So back to Caitlin Johnstone's article. Russia, even though they are right now the white-hot focus of the two-minutes hate, is not the target of the U.S. empire. The ultimate target is China. Now, Dave DeCamp writes for Antiwar.com, and this is what he writes about the National Defense Strategy, or NDS. He says the full NDS is still classified, but the Pentagon released a fact sheet on the document saying that it will act urgently to sustain and strengthen deterrence with the People's Republic of China, as our, or PRC, as our most consequential strategic competitor, and the pacing challenge for the department. So these are the four priorities outlined for the Pentagon. Number one, defending the homeland, pace to the growing multi-domain threat posed by the PRC. Number two, deterring strategic attacks against the United States, allies, and partners. Number three, deterring aggression while being prepared to prevail in conflict when necessary. Prioritizing the PRC challenge in the Indo-Pacific and the Russian challenge in Europe. And number four, building a resilient joint force and defense ecosystem. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, the Pentagon says that while China is the focus, Russia poses acute threats because of its invasion of Ukraine. And DeCamp backs her up on this, saying, this shows the empire's view of Moscow as a second-tier enemy. Ahead of a meeting with China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, foreign, Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has made some comments which clearly illustrate the U.S. centralized empire's actual problem with Moscow. Lavrov said to the Chinese government on Wednesday, we together with you and with our sympathizers will move towards a multipolar, just democratic world order. And Caitlin Johnstow says, that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the real reason we've been hearing so much hysterical shrieking about Russia these last five or six years. It's never been about Russian hackers nor about a Kremlin PP tape, nor about Trump Tower, nor about GRU bounties in Afghanistan, <coughs> nor about Manafort, Flynn, Bannon, Papadopoulos, or any other Russia Russiagate surname of the week. It's not even actually about Ukraine. These have all been narrative-shaping constructs manipulated by the U.S. intelligence cartel to manufacture support for a final showdown against Russia and China to prevent the emergence of a multipolar world. Now, she says the U.S. government has had a policy in place since the fall of the Soviet Union to prevent the rise of any powers which could challenge its imperial agendas for the world. During the first Cold War, the strategy promoted by empire managers like Henry Kissinger was to court China out of necessity to pull it away from the USSR, which was when we saw business ties between China and the U.S. lead to immense profits for certain individuals in both nations and the influx of wealth, which now has China on track to surpass the the U.S. as an economic superpower. Once the USSR ended, so too did the need to remain on friendly terms with China. And subsequent decades saw a sharp pivot into a much more adversarial relationship with Beijing. In what history may one day regard as the U.S. empire's greatest strategic blunder... Empire managers forecasted the acquisition of post-Soviet Russia as an imperial lackey state which could be weaponized against the new enemy number one in China, but instead the exact opposite happened. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton told the Bloomberg New Economy Forum last year that she'd heard for years that Russia would become more willing to move toward the West, more willing to engage in a positive way with Europe, the UK, the US, because of problems on its border. Because of the rise of China. But that's not what has occurred. We haven't seen that, Clinton said. Instead, what we've seen is a concerted effort by Putin, maybe to hug China more. So, Caitlin Johnstone says the empire's expectation that Moscow would come groveling to the imperial throne on its own, that no real effort was expended trying to establish goodwill and win over its friendship. NATO just kept on expanding and the empire got more increasingly aggressive and belligerent in its games of global conquest. And this error has led to the strategist's ultimate nightmare of having to fight for global domination against two separate powers at once. Because empire architects incorrectly predicted that Moscow would end up fearing Beijing more than it fears Washington. The tandem between China's economic power and Russia's military power that experts have been pointing to for years has only gotten more and more intimate. And now here we are with Russian and Chinese officials openly discussing their plans to create a multipolar world, while Chinese pundits crack jokes about the US Empire's transparent ploys to turn Beijing against Moscow over the Ukraine invasion. This is from Liu Jin who tweeted, Can you help me fight your friends so that I can concentrate on fighting you later? This was tweeted just about a week ago. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, On the empire's grand chessboard, Russia is the queen piece, but China is the king. Just as with chess, it helps to take out your opponent's strongest piece to more easily pursue checkmate. Well, the U.S. empire would be well advised to try and topple China's nuclear superpower friend, And as Consortium News Editor-in-Chief Joe Laria put it, ultimately restore a Yeltsin-like puppet to Moscow. So basically, we're all looking at the major international news stories of our time, or all we're looking at in those stories is the rise of a multipolar world crashing headlong into an empire, which has espoused the belief that unipolar domination must be retained at all costs. Even if that means flirting with the possibility of a very fast and radioactive third world war. She says this is the Hail Mary Pass of the U.S. hegemon. Its last-ditch effort to secure control before forever losing any chance at it. Many anti-imperialist pundits that she reads regularly seem quite confident that this effort will fail. While she says, I personally think those forecasts may be a bit premature. The way the chess pieces are moving, it definitely does look like there's a plan in place. And I don't think they'd be orchestrating that plan if they didn't believe it had a chance to succeed. Caitlin Johnstone says, one thing that does seem clear is that the only way the empire has any chance of stopping the rise of China is by maneuvers that will be both highly disruptive and existentially dangerous for the entire world. And this last line really drives it home. She says, if you think things are crazy right now, just wait until the imperial crosshairs move to Beijing. Now, I, I understand. She's writing from Australia, so people may be tempted to dismiss it. Well, she just hates America, and it's because she's not one of us. And you, know, you, you may think I hate America because I'm sharing this. I most assuredly do not hate America. But I do, not, uh, I do not have any sense of loyalty toward our political class. You want to talk about people who hate America? That's where I would point to the greatest haters of all time. Why would I say such a thing? Brian, these are people who swore an oath to the Constitution, yes, and turned around and violated it immediately upon taking office. Look at their actions. Look at what they have done. Look at what they're currently doing to us, the American people. I mean, can we stop pretending that the American government, particularly the federal government, is on our side? It's clearly not. They clearly view us as the enemy. Don't believe it? Just spend a few minutes looking into the January 6th committee and their proceedings. Basically, anyone who is not on board with whatever they want and whatever the ruling class is insisting has to be done is considered an enemy. Land of the free, home of the brave. Yes, I think those are legit ideals, and I think most Americans carry those in their hearts. But it's not descriptive of the way that people who run our government think. And that's why I can't say that I'm on board with them. Not even close.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is one of my great sponsors. And if you live in Southern Utah, what a resource you have! I bet you know someone who is really into sewing, or embroidery, or even into uh, long arm quilting. I look at the quilts that my own mom has made, and, and she has just got this incredible legacy of quilts that uh, I expect are going to be handed down for many generations to come. And I think that's kind of a cool thing. I I like the legacy part of sewing. A lot more than I liked wearing homemade shirts when I was a kid. But, hey, the technology has come a long way. The machines themselves are fantastic. Sewing and Quilting Center can not only sell you the machines, but they can teach you how to use them. They can sell you the supplies, the thread, the fabric, everything that goes along with it. And they also have classes that will teach you how to best use your machine. And they can service those machines for you long after you bought them when they need that service. Because you're using them all the time. Check them out. There's a link in my show notes, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Let them know you appreciate them being a sponsor of the show. How about something positive? You ready to find freedom in an increasingly unfree world? All right, well, the fact of the matter is that's getting harder. But here is an interesting trend, and I'm going to be keeping an eye on this one. Max Borders reports on an encouraging development in which a Native American tribe hopes to colonize the world with digital freedom. He says, drive about 30 minutes south of Charlotte and you'll find the bedroom community of Rock Hill, just over the border in South Carolina. The the Catawba tribe of Native Americans lives and works on a reservation there, just a short commute away from America's third largest banking center. And recently, these original Americans established something incredibly promising, a digital SEZ, that special economic zone similar to that offered by Estonia. Now, the Baltic region's freest country pioneered the e-residence program. It's a program that allows one to be a legal resident of Estonia, but live anywhere in the world. In other words, one can live in Egypt, but incorporate her business in Estonia, and thereby benefit from lower taxes, lighter regulation, and a stable business climate, even if she incorporates far away. And the Catawba Indians have taken note. The Catawba have the right to establish an independent commercial code as a sovereign nation. Indeed, the tribe defied stereotypes to establish a jurisdiction friendly to innovation and entrepreneurship, particularly digital entrepreneurship. They're calling it the green earth zone or GEZ. Now, special economic zones have been powerful instruments for economic development. That's according to Ronnie Beck, who's the CEO of Kataba Corporations. In other words, they enable rapid economic growth. And he continues. Special economic zones also rely on tax incentives, but with our status as a sovereign jurisdiction, we are also able to create a best-in-class regulatory climate for the digital, fintech, and blockchain sectors. Our plan is to allow these businesses to operate with certainty and under regulations that protect consumers that help mature the industry. So the Green Earth Zone will not only serve companies domestically and internationally, but will also create tremendous economic opportunities for our people of the Catawba Nation. So Max Bortus says the play here is referred to as jurisdictional arbitrage. That means the Catawba are creating greener pastures for innovators and entrepreneurs right in the middle of an empire in decline. All right, any of you who have ever stopped at Moapa Tribal Enterprises to buy your favorite illegal fireworks or discounted liquors or tobaccos, you understand the benefit of this. Anybody in Idaho who likes to go and gamble at the uh, the um, Bannock-Fort uh, Hall-Shoshone reservation, they, they you know, the the Indian tribes, the, the Native American tribes, because of that sovereignty, there are things they get to enjoy that the rest of us living, you know, under the, the federal government, don't. So I'm kind of interested in seeing how this works, particularly as it pertains to digital freedom. Max Borders writes, the savvy Catawba tribe realizes the U.S. government is becoming increasingly predatory and unfriendly to enterprise, particularly Web3 industries such as cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, or DeFi. As legacy financial institutions collude with the federal government to shore up their power in the face of competitive threats, they will lobby to strangle Web3 industries with red tape. After all, the federal government, the Federal Reserve, and the legacy financial sector are locked in a corrupt menage-a-trois, Wealthy elites benefit the most from interventionist fiscal and monetary policy, as economist Richard Cantillion explained in 1755. As inflation and debt spending continue, we, our children and grandchildren, stand to inherit a colossal mess, all while subsidizing the wealthiest people in America along the way. And Max Border says we all know that's gravely wrong, no matter who voted for whom or which party's in charge. But as long as we operate in the dollar's matrix, we will be victims of these corruptive forces. So how about exiting the matrix? Cryptocurrencies and decentralized finance or DeFi allow one to escape this matrix. Native commercial sovereignty could provide some protection, that is, unless the federal government continues its dark history of suppressing and marginalizing native peoples. Bureau of Indian Affairs commentary on the extent of Indian commercial sovereignty is murky. They say tribes possess all powers of self-government except those relinquished under treaty with the United States, those that Congress has expressly extinguished, and those that federal courts have ruled are subject to existing federal law or are inconsistent with overriding national policies. Tribes, therefore, possess the right to form their own governments, to make and enforce laws, both civil and criminal, to tax, to establish and determine membership, in other words, tribal citizenship, to license and regulate activities within their jurisdiction to zone and to exclude persons from tribal lands. Limitations on inherent tribal powers of self-government are few, but do include the same limitations applicable to states. Neither states nor tribes have the power to make war, engage in foreign relations, or print and issue currency. Now back to the article... Max Border says following a cursory v- review therefore it's unclear what sort of customer and company protections the Green Earth zone can offer at this stage in the development of web3 hopefully it can be an additional layer of protection against financial government complex that's increasingly predatory and that sees cryptocurrency as a threat to its hegemony but understand this green energy or this green earth zone rather is not without competition on the beautiful island of Rotan in Honduras, legal and governance entrepreneurs have set up Prospera, a highly advanced special, special economic zone. I think I've got that right there. Yes, special economic zone. Sorry, I had to recheck my my um, acronyms here. Prospera recently launched a 100 million dollar security token raise such that accredited investors can make fractional investments in Prospera real estate. Now, this groundbreaking approach to fundraising leverages the greatest benefits of blockchain technology, simplicity, security, and tradability, said Prospera president Joel Baumgar. By partnering with Securitize to issue our security token offering, or STO, we give our investors a frictionless and legally up-to-date way to have direct ownership in Prospera's first charter city development. Now, legacy power should take note small sovereign nations like Liechtenstein, Estonia, Singapore, and Dubai are successful because they're small and relatively nimble. They've liberalized. They think of themselves as startups competing against great powers. This means we're likely to see more upstart zones like Prospera and the Green Earth Zone, particularly in areas seeking to bootstrap commercial inclusion and growth for their people. He says the emergence of new... Special economic zones creates competitive governance opportunities. Unlike legacy states, these jurisdictions run like businesses, making them formidable, even in the shadow of lumbering powers like the U.S. And as each new system emerges, the cost of exiting a a failing jurisdiction goes down. Each new zone represents an escape hatch that helps expand the sovereignty of free peoples, especially those who create entrepreneurial value. So when you couple competitive terrestrial governance with cloud governance, in other words, jurisdictions that exist everywhere and nowhere, entrepreneurs will find opportunities to get out from under the thumb of authorities bent on funding technocratic dreams and war machines. And this creates a strange set of ironies for the 21st century, three of which come immediately to mind. Number one, the American dream is less likely to be found in the United States Number two, we might find that dream increasingly among Native Americans and in Central America. Number three, past victims of colonial oppression and corruption are becoming the exponents of freedom and good governance. So the point here is as the United States continues to decline, we need to find the exits. And Max Borders says if the Green Earth Zone is successful, Native Americans of all people will have saved a few scraps of freedom. That they're willing to share that freedom with the rest of us speaks volumes about the integrity of the Catawba people. Okay, maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but that sounds pretty hopeful to me. And I would encourage you to take a look at the article. I've got it linked in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhide.show.com. He's got some very useful links that you can follow to further deepen your understanding on this subject. All right, got to take a break here. We've got one more segment coming up. It's going to be a doozy. Consider subscribing to my show notes if you'd like to get this kind of information on a daily basis or at least every day that I do the show. I don't charge anything for it. The only thing I ask is your email, which I will never sell or share with anybody else. Stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I've been throwing a lot at you today, but uh, I feel really good about uh, the quality of the information that I've been able to to pull together. And I appreciate those of you who, uh, who send me articles, and I want you to understand... I really rely on uh, my listening audience who who has this this incredible amount of combined brain power and and reach to spot articles that I may miss. I spend a lot of my spare time looking for things that are interesting and relevant. But every time you send me something, I greatly appreciate it. It helps me more than you know. So if you want to send me stuff, you can do it through my website. There's a contact button where you can uh, reach out to me at com. Really appreciate it. All right. One final note here, not to add to your anxieties, but uh, I think it's pretty clear right now that the power seekers that uh, we live around really prefer that we live in a state of perpetual crisis. We just go seamlessly from one to the next to the next. And Paul Krause has a great article spelling out what these forever crises are really about, as well as why we should reject the fear peddling. It's a really great article. He says, we live in an age of forever crises, and he says, I may not be as old as other Americans, but for my early memories and maturation, coinciding with the post 9-11 world, I have noticed that we live in an age of forever crises. These forever crises have certainly become more acute and part of the public consciousness since COVID, but it goes back long before COVID. Some crises are not crises, though they may be related to critical issues we must contend with. So he says, Let us not confuse an important issue to deal with as a crisis. So the war on terror, that's a critical issue. But he says, I don't consider it a crisis. I recall this crisis being blown out of proportion when I was an elementary student in the midst of the anthrax scare. Saddam Hussein's WMDs that were supposedly going to be launched on New York City in the drumbeat of perpetual war and never ending military intervention against people who hardly have the ability to invade the United States most Americans have now seen through this facade pushed for 20 years. But the war on terror was billed as a crisis. The success of the U.S. military, despite the eventual failure of our political and punditry class, caused this crisis to slip to the back of our minds. It became more of a nuisance two decades later to still be stuck in war, despite constant military success. Some, however, think it's a great idea to be stuck in forever wars. As the crisis that was the war on terror slid away, a new crisis emerged, one with far more dangerous staying power, global warming. We were told in the mid-2000s of the impending doom of our coasts, of island nations around the world, and that if we did not immediately change our economy and way of life, we would be the last generation to live on the earth. Now we're still living under the auspices of this crisis. There is no planet beam any millennials hold at their idolatrous uh at their idolatrous global warming vigils and gatherings. The global warming crisis is also related to the economic crisis. The economic crisis of global capitalism and poverty or so we are told. Let us not worry about the fact that global poverty is decreasing and the standards of living are increasing. We are told since especially since the 2008 recession rather that our current economic crisis or our current economic system rather is acidic to the environment and to human flourishing. Dealing with this crisis involves the gigantic expansion of federal bureaucracies and the regulatory agencies to counteract what businesses, charities, and the market cannot. Then COVID hit. And while we've seen the slow backtracking of the media over the dictatorial lusts of ostracism and COVID shaming, The COVID crisis was equally global as all the previous crises were. COVID also demanded increased federalization, bureaucratization, and regulatory measures that stripped civil liberties and small businesses. Only Leviathan could save us from our own stupidity. Now we're on the verge of World War III. And while most people, especially Americans, are decidedly on the side of the Ukrainians fighting for their freedoms and preserving their sovereignty, aren't these noble goals worth advocating at all times? The media and our political leaders who worship at the altar of the Leviathan are speaking the language of treachery, calling for anti-war advocates to be locked up and that there needs to be greater governmental response to the war. What all the crises of the 21st century have in common is that they are perpetual and they demand big government solutions that will invariably reduce individual and civil society liberties and norms. The worshippers of Leviathan need crises. Never let a crisis go to waste, as Rahm Emanuel said, in order to advance their totalitarian agenda. And it is a totalitarian agenda they advocate. Crises demand to- to- totalizing responses. We must sacrifice as individuals and forget the idea of normal and embrace a new normal. What Orwellian language and newspeak, all things considered? The new normal, of course, is greater government control over our lives and the continued erosion of civil liberties and the desecration of the vibrancy of civil society. So to go back to the old normal is the world of relationships, freedom, and open association. No more! Not in this brave new world we live in. These authoritarians and totalitarians, especially in America and the broader Western broader Western world, though they cloak their intentions in softer, more benign language than open revolutionaries, simply move from one crisis to the next. And their sycophantic allies in the media keep us drowned in 24-7 news over these crises. We're force-fed the lies of perpetual crisis to frighten us into submission. Thomas Hobbes wrote uh, that people are willing to surrender their liberties to government out of fear, Fear is what compels us to flee to the foot of the mortal God that is the state for the promises of protection and security. Free us from the danger of harm is the impetus of the slow growth of authoritarian government that becomes totalitarian government over the course of time. Governments totalizing control over all aspect of, all aspects of our lives. And what has the century of perpetual crisis revealed? Well, Precisely this. If we consent to the government solution in all these crises we will be free from the danger and harm that threatens our lives. So we're inundated by the media and the rhetoric of our politicians with the constant threats which rely on a sense of fear to surrender our liberties. If we do not, then they employ the fear of social and moral shaming. How dare you not have compassion for your neighbor or grandma? Now, Paul Kraus says, We who love liberty, the American experiment, and true human flourishing must remain vigilant of the constancy of the forever crises that now abound. He says we will not, we will never not be without crises. Sorry, that took a couple of times to maneuver through. We will never not be without crises, according to the government and media. We must, however, not let their constant barrage of crises and fears eradicate our spirit of free living and human existence. He says we must live our lives independent, Of their fear mongering. The true health of our souls, our society, and our nation depend on our rejection of the forever crises to simply live life rather than submit in fear of life. Liberty also depends on our living free of their fear mongering and posturing of forever crises which aim, at their heart, to eradicate freedom. So there's the challenge in front of us. Now, I know it seems daunting, and there are times when I find myself feeling like I'm right there on the verge of despair. And by the way, when we talk about despair, I think, I think this deserves just a little bit of, uh, of extra explanation here. The best description I have ever heard of despair was actually one that I heard Ammon Bundy describe a few years ago when he was speaking at an agricultural conference in Modesto, California. Despair is not simply feeling discouragement. It's not just like, oh, oh this is hard, or this, I'm discouraged. I, I feel down, or I feel like I'm overwhelmed. Despair is something considerably deeper. Despair is when you reach the point where, where you absolutely are, are feeling paralyzed. There is nothing more that I can do. Basically, despair is where you reach the point where you are ready to throw in the towel. Now, Ammon was describing the despair that he was feeling as he was sitting in a prison cell awaiting trial. And it was despair based not on, I've been caught and now I'm going to get punished for my sins against the state. His despair stemmed from the fact that his little children were were separated from him and his worry for them. Now, in a nutshell, what did he do to overcome that sense of despair? He turned to God. And he provided a very vivid example of what it was like to be on his knees praying for relief and praying for deliverance from that despair. And he actually described an experience where he very clearly was delivered from that despair. I later saw him give an interview after that experience where he talked with with such certainty about how the day will come when we are free and when it happens... People will know that it was by God's hand that we were freed, and I, I marveled at the confidence with which he said it. But after hearing his story of how he was snapped out of his despair, I understood the confidence with which he was speaking in that interview. There's a lesson in there. This is The Brian Hyde Show.